the FT. This was the week that Apple launched a music streaming service. Spotify raised half a billion dollars. Greece stared Angela Merkel in the eye. Turkey's president got a slap in the face. The founder of Alibaba said that he wished that he'd never floated his business on the stock exchange. I'm Henry Mance, and this is Best of the FT podcast, the show that scrolls through the week's news like a fidgety teenager. To kick off, UK politics, and there's panic in the Labour Party after the general election. Here's our political commentator, Janan Ganesh, telling everybody to calm down. Well, as recently as five weeks ago, people were absolutely convinced of one thing, which is that whatever the election result was, it would not be a majority for the Conservatives. It ended up being a majority for the Conservatives. And I think, I think through sheer embarrassment and almost guilt... That was a huge shock, wasn't it? It was, and it conflicted with all the polling evidence and the commentary... But I think through a combination of guilt and embarrassment, a lot of us in the political class have gone to the opposite extreme, which is now ruling out Labour's chances in five years' time in, in the 2020 general election. And I think there's, there's no reason to, to, to be so presumptuous. The obvious bear trap is Europe. The worst-case <laughs> scenario is that you have another version of what happened to the Tories in the 19th century over free trade, where they literally split, almost became two parties. Maybe they can avoid something that extreme, but they'll still be pretty riven and divided by the middle of the parliament. But that's not the main reason for Labour to be optimistic. But the main reason why I would still hold some optimism if I were a Labour MP or activist is that what they have found hardest to deal with is David Cameron. He's a pretty popular prime minister, or at least a well-respected one, far more popular than his party. He will be gone if he honours his promise before the next election. And that means none of these candidates Labour are choosing from have to beat David Cameron. They have to beat whoever his successor is. And it's not obvious to me that his successor will be as good. There are already several Tories vying to succeed David Cameron. There's the old Etonian charmer Boris Johnson, the uncompromising Theresa May and the remodelled Chancellor George Osborne. This week Osborne promised to make it a law for future governments to run a budget surplus in normal times. I'm joined by the FT's economics correspondent, Ferdinando Giuliano, to discuss the proposal. Now, Ferdinando, what's the good side to this idea? Well, what the Chancellor has in mind, really, is that he thinks the sound public finances are the base of sound and sustainable economic growth. So what he's saying is Britain has a high debt, which has been climbing over the last few years, and now it's time to try and pay back this debt and make sure that future generations don't have the burden which has accumulated so far. Okay, so if debt's bad, then this law might well be good. What's the counter-argument? Well, the counter-argument has been made almost conveniently by the International Monetary Fund, by some research staff, just a few days ago. And what they say is, look, to run a budget surplus, you have a cost. The cost is higher taxes or lower spending. Now, higher taxes may distort people's incentive. That means if your income tax goes up, then you may want to work less, or the government may need to cut productive investment, which means lower growth in the future. The UK, the IMF is saying, doesn't really need to worry too much about its debt. Why? Because there are people out there who really want to buy UK government bonds anyway. So there is not a problem of sustainability of the debt. There is no a problem of who is going to buy this debt. So what the Chancellor wants to do is unnecessary. What the IMF is recommending instead is just saying, look, make sure there is enough growth. If there is enough growth, then the debt will nicely come down as long as you don't keep running a stupidly high deficit. This is a sort of a bid for political immortality by George Osborne to say that you'll remember him being Chancellor. What do you think the chances are we'll be talking about this proposal in 10 years' time? 
Well, I think the question is, first of all, uh, what will happen to it once this government is over? You know, it may be that Osborne passes it, but what will happen in the future? Will other governments say, a Labour government, keep it in place? And now there is a bit of a bid for immortality, as you say, but there is a lot of political uh, positioning as well. Osborne really wants to put uh, Labour in a corner by saying, are you with me? in backing this idea, or are you the same old Labour which likes spending a lot and increasing the deficit? Great, thanks very much. Now to Turkey, where politics has been dominated for a decade by Recep Tayyip Erdogan. He was hoping for sweeping new powers in last weekend's election. Instead, his party lost its majority. The big surprise was the Kurds, who entered Parliament by finally achieving more than 10% of the vote. Here's Daniel Dombey, the FT's correspondent in Istanbul. Turkey has the highest threshold to enter parliament in the world, 10%. And many people say that it's extremely unfair that you can't get a party into parliament unless you surpass that level. This was precisely put in place by the 1982 constitution in the military regime to stop the country's Kurds from entering parliament. But the brilliance of the Kurdish party's maneuver is that they use this as a means, as a campaigning tool, going up and down Turkey, telling people, you need to vote for us, because we can only enter parliament if we're above 10%. And only if we're in parliament can we stop Erdogan from pursuing his presidential ambitions. And that's why they sweat the secularist neighborhoods, many of whose inhabitants have never gone within 100 kilometers of the Kurdish southeastern heartlands of Turkey. All in all, Turkey's liberals are celebrating. But the country still doesn't have a government and has plenty of problems to face. It requires Mr Erdogan to reconcile himself to Parliament. He's a person who gives the Prime Minister nominee his mandate and also the person who decides that there's no good and you just have to call fresh elections. The AKP has to reconcile itself to coalition and the opposition parties have to work out who, if anyone, they're going to work with. There is no obvious government out coming out of this. And more fundamentally, there are some real structural problems with Turkish economy. It's very based on domestic demand founded on borrowed money. It needs structural reforms. This kind of setup doesn't make it look likely that we're going to have a strong government doing those reforms in the immediate future, at the very least. By the way, here's a fact. Before entering politics, Erdogan was actually a semi-professional footballer in Turkey. Finally, what can Snapchat do for advertisers? The answer might seem simple. Advertisers want millennials, Snapchat has millions of them, and so the messaging service has started carrying adverts from the likes of Taco Bell, Budweiser, and even American Action Network, a right-wing lobbying group. Hannah Kushler, from our San Francisco office, explained what Snapchat is up to. I don't think it's under pressure from investors. You know, investors are still pouring in. Its last valuation was about $16 billion. I think, actually, it realises that It's an unusual product with these disappearing messages. It's not something that's obvious how to fit advertising into. And it wants to explore that. In some ways, Facebook and Twitter set the scene for it. They had to convince marketers that digital advertising had a value. And so they didn't start doing that until they were maybe six, seven years old. But Snapchat can come in, you know, faster in their footsteps. However, they also convinced marketers that data was the value for digital marketing. And Snapchat doesn't have much data. So even 100 million daily users might not be all that if you don't have the data on who they are. That's all for this week. We'll be back next Friday with the best of the FT podcasts. Thanks for listening. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.